Welcome to No Ideas Original featuring Shannon and a good brother, Mr. Rob. We're joined by Master Ace. What's up, man? How you doing? What's up, fellas? What's up, champ? Yeah, what? Looking good, brother. Everybody good? Yeah, man. Cold, cold. Well, first and foremost, I want to say thank you for agreeing to do this. We appreciate you taking time out. I'm sure you got a, a busy schedule, even with everything going on with COVID. No, I was, it's, Mondays are usually pretty re relaxed for me. Um, and uh, I, I stay around the house, uh, do stuff around the house. Maybe I go for a bike ride, but that's pretty much it. I don't do too much on Mondays. Okay. okay. So we got we have a range of questions to ask you. We want to ask you some historical questions about you know your history as an MC, and we want to ask you, of course, about things that's currently going on in the world. Also, so I wanted to start out by saying that I think that to me you're one of the most underrated MCs. You know, from a, a He froze up. He froze up a little bit. I think I know where he was going with this. Yeah, yes, definitely. Because you called yourself the great anomaly. You know what I'm saying? Anomaly. And I, I believe so, too. You're one of my favorite MCs coming out of Brooklyn. Not Biggie, not Jay. No disrespect to them. But your lyricism and your storytelling, maybe that's because you're a little bit of a Sagittarius. Sagittarius like to give out stories like that. But talk a little bit about your your rhyme style and, and, and what made you an MC. I mean, I really, I really was, I was DJing first. So it started with, it started with me DJing. I was in a crew of DJs, it's five or six of us in the crew. And we would just make instrumental tapes all day. Um, really just trying to emulate what we were hearing coming from the Bronx and from Queens, the other parts of the city. Right, um, right. Cause back then it was just all about the DJ cutting up breaks and right. doing scratching and getting fast with it and all that. So we, you know, we were all doing that. Um, right. But then at some point the, 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 the tapes changed and they started having rhymes on them and our tapes didn't really measure up anymore with just instrumentals. So I was really the first one in the crew that, that attempted to like put some vocals to what we were doing. And what um, were, what were some of those, those tapes that influenced you? Was it Cold Crush Brothers? And it was, it was, Cold Crush was definitely in the mix. Uh, Treacherous Three. A lot of them were parties like, uh, Parties yeah. that were happening in in the Bronx and Harlem, um, and people would record the whole party. So different different artists would come up and perform their routines, their raps, and you would hear the crowd reaction and all of that stuff. And and that was more exciting than just an instrumental right. tape. So you know we liked that. I liked that. And so I said, well, I'll be the one to try to add some flavor to our tapes. And I, the first couple of things I did was just really taking the rhymes that I heard on the tapes and changing them up and putting my name in them. But I, I wasn't really writing. I was just like, right, <coughs> I'm going to take his name. I'll put my name in. And, and, right. and that's how we started kind of, you know, emulating what I was hearing. Correct. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I was saying before, I, before I broke up though, I, I hear your musical influence in a lot of MCs, you know, today, I think it was a award show. Maybe I think Eminem may have had on like a mass ace sitting on Chrome shirt or something like that and gave you a, a shout out. Um, do you feel that maybe because you were in a crew with um, Big Daddy Kane and Coogee Rap that people slept on your ability? Not, I don't think it had anything to do with that. I just really, you know, I, I sort of measure everything by, by by New York standards. And so from a New York point of view, I never really had that New York record. Like a lot of my peers, even if it was just one song, they had that that one undeniable 
New York banger that New York went crazy over. And yeah, sure. throughout my career, I never really had that New York record. I had other regional records, records that, that popped in other regions, but not New York. So that's probably one of the reasons why I kind of get overlooked. Um, and, you know, being on a label with all of these talented artists, you mentioned Kane and G-Rap, but you got to, you know, mention Shan, mention Bismarck, mention Roxanne Shantae. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty crowded over there trying to trying to get in where you fit in and trying to, you know, um, stand out from uh, among so many so many artists that were popular artists. Right. So that that definitely had a lot to do with it. You know, while while the Juice Crew was really my launch point, um, it didn't give me the type of exposure that I probably needed that early in my career. Mm. Talk about how, how, how you met Molly Maul. I met Molly. Well. I won a rap contest um, at the skating rink in Queens, New York, called United Skates of America. And first prize uh, was six hours of studio time. And the guy who, who ran the skating rink was like, well, you know, you're really good, man. I I know Molly Moss, so I'm going to pay him for the six hours and have you record with him. And so shout to Gerald Waterman, who who, who actually was the one who, made that happen because he could have just gave me the money and been like six hours at this studio or that studio. Mm-hmm. Um, but he took it upon himself to specifically tell Marley that he was going to pay him for the studio time. And that that's where I was going to go and record my six hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I met Marley. I won the contest in December of that year, which would have been like 85, I guess I won. I won the contest in December and then I didn't actually meet Marley until the following summer of 86, when uh, I'd called his house probably 50, 60 times throughout that time that I, from the time I won the contest to the time I met him, I was calling his house. They gave me a number. They said, this is Marley's number and I'm calling, calling. And his sister would answer. And, you know, after a while she got to know me, we would, hi Ace, he's not here, (laughs) you know, and sort of towards the beginning of the summer, she just started feeling sorry for me because I was, I was so persistent and trying to get my studio time. I mean, I won a contest. I wanted, I wanted what was rightfully mm-hmm. mine. That's right. And so one day she was just like, you know what? He don't live here, actually. Here's his real number. And she gave me the real number. And I called very, very uh, aggressively, like, yo, this is Ace, and you owe me studio time, and la, la, la. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, all right, meet me. Meet me in Queensbridge Projects on such and such day. He's like, meet me at one o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, bet. And I jumped on the train, rode out to, from Brooklyn out to Queens. I got there like 12. Like he said one, I was there at 12. Front. Sit, sitting on the bench. And he pulled up at like six. Wow. Damn. Yeah. We were out there like five hours. I met Craig G that day. Uh, he, he, he saw us sitting on the bench and walked up and was like, you guys waiting for Marley? A lot, a lot of rappers be out here waiting for him. I figured, I figured that. And, uh, <laughs> Wow. So we, we sat and talked with Craig for like probably two hours just about different stuff. And he's young. Craig was like 16, man, like a kid. Wow. Um, we talked for a while. And then right around 6 o'clock, Marley comes pulling up. He's like, there go Marley right there. He had just bought a new car. I guess he was at the car dealership haggling and negotiating on the price mm-hmm. and whatever. And it just, it went long. And so he came walking up and, you know, that's that, that was my first day meeting him. Walk, went, up, went up into his apartment in Queensbridge and recorded my first little demo. What wow. was it? Say again. What was it? What was that first demo you worked on? Uh, I think 
I think it was a joint called Power Move that never came out. But don't quote me. But I think it was a joint called Power. That was definitely one of the first joints that I recorded. It was mm-hmm. just like some lyrical, you know, trying to prove I'm dope, like just mm-hmm. flipping words, whatever, trying to be dope. That, yeah. you know, and I think it. I think that was the song though. Based on your your early experience with Cold Chilling, did you ever think that hip hop would last this long and be this lucrative? No, um, I really, you know, the year that I met Marley and the year that I finally got to record was the same year I graduated from college. So, in my mind, you know, what I was going to be doing was putting together a resume and getting out there and trying to get me a job in marketing or in advertising and going the corporate route. That's really what I was you know, basically set up to do. So um, once this whole music thing kind of looked like it was taking shape, you know, I said, okay, well, maybe I'll get a record, you know, maybe a record will come out. That'd be cool. Uh, But I still didn't envision a career. Absolutely not. Um, There were a couple of artists that were making money, you know, the Fat Boys, Run DMC, big, big, big names. Yeah, Um, but you you didn't see, the groundwork wasn't laid yet for an artist to have a career, even though it's not this huge commercial career, but still have a career that they can, you know, uh, look back 30 years later and say, wow, I, I, I'm still at it. I'm still doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Me, me and uh, me and Rob were talking prior to you getting on and I was, you know, I was sharing with him. I think one of the things that I've grown to appreciate about hip hop is that, you know, you have, well, I'm talking about previous generations. You have like, you know, MCs like yourself. Um, you know, we had General Steele from Boot Camp on um, also. And you have people who have put together a great body of work that they can continue to tour and make money and feed their families from doing music, you know. And then you think about this generation. In this generation, you may have somebody who may have come out, have one smash hit. And their, their legacy may just be that they have one smash hit. They earn some money off of it. And then when it's all said and done, you don't have the ability to do it. Whereas, you know, you have you guys that you've, you know, you've built a legacy that allows you to tour the world performing these songs and these songs are timeless. I recently asked myself, what would I have preferred? Would I have preferred to have that one big national, you know, record that everybody knows and I will, that will always be synonymous with my name? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe go platinum with that one song and, you know, get a plaque and make a whole bunch of money for like two years. Um, but then down the road, um, you know, just not get booked because maybe that's no, people don't care like that anymore. Yeah. yeah. Or have the career that I had. And, and when I look at it, you know, yeah, you know, you wish you kind of had that one record or that, that, that one that final record, but. If I had to choose between the two, I would take the the career that I have right now because, you know, even if I had gone platinum with this one particular imaginary single, that money would have been spent, mm-hmm. it would have been gone. Oh, yeah. You know, um, I would be I, I would be telling everybody about the cars I used to have, the crib <laughs> I used to have, and yeah. I would be struggling to get a show, struggling to do anything. Um, so you know, there's two. There's probably more than two routes, but those are the two routes that I looked at, and I realized one it could have been one or the other. And I gotta be, I gotta say, I'm blessed and fortunate to have the the career that I do have. 
no di no disrespect to a dude like like think about a guy like young jock young jock had whatever that record was was a hit single probably nationally yeah no but young jock ain't nobody calling young jock yo come over to germany and perform your record like it you know whatever success he had off that one record he probably already exhausted all of that success yeah and he, his he was on i believe he was on bad boy so he probably doesn't even get really royalties or royalties. Yeah. yeah 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 man let's talk a little bit about the existing uh, era that you were in being in that environment how competitive was it the g-rap the team y'all you know working together like well when you say competitive it wasn't like dudes were overtly testing each other right. like that. But, but if you hear something, you'd be like, right. You hear their records or you hear their verses. You're like, dang, okay, shit. I, I need you. to, I need to come with something on that level. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'll never forget hearing G rap's verse on the symphony the day we recorded that joint. And I was sitting back like, man, I should have said something else. I, I had another rhyme. I could have said instead of that one, that, 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 he just like blew it out the water. Like I think he even had Kane kind of on his heels because when he first recorded the verse, like I recorded mine, Craig recorded his, and then G Rap went. Right. And G Rap rapped for like four minutes straight. He rapped until the reel, the, the tape reel went off the reel. And Molly's like, yo, it's too long. Like we don't we didn't there's no room for Kane. And after that long, I mean, he was murdering it, but I don't even know what that rhyme was to this day. I, I'd have to, I don't even know what rhyme he said, but it was some mm -hmm. craziness. Right. So then after Marley's like, yo, you got to shorten it. G-Rap's like, I'll just say something else. And then he spit what we, we know as the verse. Oh, I mean, wow. like, who, who has a crazy long rhyme like that that's ridiculous and then has another joint that's wow. even more ridiculous? Like, it's just so... In your mind, it's competitive because you you realize what the bar is, and you're trying to make sure that you can measure up in some way to that mm -hmm. bar. And right. um, those guys kept me sharp. They kept they made me, you know, I had to prove my work. Bottom line. Mm -hmm. Back then, you had to do that. Man. You had to show and prove. Man. So, what do you, what do you think about the state of MCs today? Um, I mean, that's good. That's that's still good MCs, man. There's still talented dudes that can rhyme. Like I. I love the fact that a young cat like, a, like a, for example, a YBN Corday, who my daughter put me on to. I never, I didn't know him at all. I never heard of him. She's, she's my daughter's fifteen, right? She came with me and was like, "I want you to hear this, this rapper I really like." And she had never come to me and brought me an artist before. Like she had never come to me and said, "I want you to hear something." That was her first time. So I was like, "Oh, okay, that different." Yeah. Of, let's see what this is. I was like really curious to know what she was going and. Sat down, listened to the whole album with her front to back, and I was like, "Yo, I'm impressed with your taste because this kid can actually rap. Like he's talented. He can rhyme, um, and the songs were good. So, okay, yeah. I picked her up for that. But you know, there's 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 still talented people out there that can rhyme, man. Like I don't focus on the dudes that are horrible. Like that's what a lot of people do, especially my generation. <laughs> they spend their whole time focusing on the guys that can't rap and how terrible mm -hmm. they are." And in their minds, they start to create this idea that everybody's terrible. And mm -hmm. that's not the case. Like, there's plenty of talented dudes out there that can rhyme. Yeah. The, um, since you've been involved in the music business, the, um, the music business has evolved. And also, the business of making music has evolved. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in terms of process of what it was like before to make an album versus what it's like now to make an album? how royalties work back then, how royalties work now, and just 
any you know any similarities or any differences you can share from from past to present i have no idea how royalties worked back then because i never got any um <laughs> so i have no idea how those worked um but the process of making the music you know back then you had to go into a actual studio like a room with a whole bunch of equipment half of it you didn't even know what it did but it probably cost you 125 150 an hour to be in that room mm-hmm. and so when you know that that's being eaten up that that, that 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 money is eating up your budget you don't go in there wasting time you go in there well some cats did go in there wasting time like the, the, a lot of these def jam artists go in there and order food order drinks <laughs> Spend the first six hours drinking, entertaining women mm-hmm. with the beat playing in the yeah. background and, and not even create anything. So I've heard those yeah. stories, but I wasn't one of those guys. I, I looked at everything like I needed to be very, very, you know, uh, economical with my studio time. And so I made sure that when I went in, I was going to make sure that it was, you know, useful, uh, productive. Whatever I was doing was going to be productive and then I was going to get what I wanted out of it. Um, mm. But, you know having to go into a studio and spend that type of money to record an album was a way to sort of weed out the people that didn't really belong or didn't have the talent to be there mm-hmm. because a label was not going to put up $300,000 for a project um, with an artist that they didn't, that wasn't proven that they didn't think really had it. So mm-hmm. compare that to now where you literally only need a laptop and a few maybe software programs Mm-hmm. And you can, in your basement or in your bedroom even, make a whole album. Like you can buy some beats off of, they have these websites where you can actually lease a beat. Oh, wow. And, and, and there's kids that lease beats from producers, 50 bucks, 60 right. bucks. They lease the beat. They make a whole album with, with lease beats and they release it themselves on SoundCloud or on, on whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, there's no gatekeepers anymore. The gatekeepers back then were the labels, uh, the A&Rs, the, the studios themselves, because, you know, that money that you had to spend to be in a studio was a deterrent if you really didn't have, nobody was going to invest in you if you really didn't have it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we've kind of lost the gatekeepers of it a little bit. Um, it's kind of like uh, open borders. I like to call it open borders. Anybody can just, you know, jump in the game and mm-hmm. throw something together they yeah. don't want to win. It could be the worst sounding thing ever, but it can. They they'll do go. They'll get a. They'll get an iPhone. They'll get an iPhone 11 and shoot a video with it, and it'll look halfway decent. And they'll put it on YouTube. And it's it's great that it's opened up people for people to be creative and to own their own stuff. But there's no gatekeeper, so the quality of the music has to be affected by that. Mm. You mentioned Def Jam. <laughs> did the and Def Jam have a rival? A rivalry? Yeah. I mean, it was an unspoken rivalry, but there were definitely there, those two labels were definitely uh, uh, one and one A. They were neck and neck yeah. in terms of you know Our, talent, in terms of records, popularity. Um, but th- there was a certain point where Def Jam just really took off and left and left Coachella in the dust, and that a lot of that had to do with the leadership. You know, the leadership at Coachella was really more about lining their own pockets mm. um and they cared less about 
the the artists that were on the label they cared more about lining their pockets and living term we used to use living large which is funny enough one of the one of the offshoot labels that they came up with after Cold Chillin, they came up with another label that they created called living large mm. and that's what you know the leadership up at Cold Chillin was trying to live large limos and you know expensive meals and mm-hmm. all of that mm-hmm. instead of putting the money back into the artist putting the money back into the label to make sure that you know everybody was taken care of and that's honestly what it was just too much partying going on and, and you know i'm sure russell did his share of partying mm-hmm. but he made sure that the that that, that the, the label was being run right yeah the business yeah. was right yeah I, I had a chance to be the um the going off book and I, a lot of those stories in it like i think they even got like accounts from you about your experience uh with cold chilling and fly tie and i think the other two was uh lenny was the thing yeah like yeah just um the experiences take a look around was um was a dope album to me i i used to, i listened to it hundreds of times probably i really liked the album and the one thing that i noticed that you had that some of the other juice crew artists didn't have is that you had co-production credits on all of the songs how did that come about yeah that was the first time that marley gave co-production to to any of his artists um and it came about because he didn't give co-production credits to bit to big daddy kane who definitely had co-produced his album and he mm. didn't give co-production credit to biz Marquis, who had definitely produced his album uh, the result of that is both of them decided that after their first album that they were going to produce their own music like we don't need marley and mm. so he saw that he saw those two relationships kind of went by the wayside i think g-rap started producing his own stuff too mm. so the so the conversation around the label mates was yeah marley he take all the credit you know i'm the one who brought that beat to him i, I bought i bought half the music to him that's what they were that's what i heard them saying and i was like man i i'm bringing a lot of music too like i, I would actually bring bags of records from my mom's collection from the crib and say like i want to rap over this part right here like loop this part and I want to rap over this. Mm-hmm. Of course, he would put his his Marley signature on it, the drums, the hi-hats, all that. He made it funky. But I walked in kind of knowing a lot of the songs that I wanted to rap and what I wanted to rap to. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I think maybe didn't happen with those other artists that I mentioned uh, and myself is that I actually asked for co-production credit. Okay. I think they assumed like they assumed that they would get it like right is right mm-hmm. and when their records came out and they saw it said the whole thing said produced by molly mall they're like oh that's whack like what's that about um and with me i just straight up was like yo i feel like i should get co-production credit and he was like you're right you're not getting co-production money but, but, but you get co-production credit and he, and he gave it to me he did he did give you a percentage though right like so uh, uh, he gave me yeah he, he gave me he gave me uh one so let's just say for example he was cold chilling was paying him eight thousand dollars a song mm-hmm. he gave me one song's worth of credit oh wow yeah yeah but you know so i guess that even with that being said having watched with g-rap Kane and what Biz had to endure, that was a learning experience for you. How important was it to get that co-production credit if uh, Cold Chillin's business wasn't in order? I mean, I, you know, for me, it was just a validation that 
I brought something to the table from the production side. I, I, I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of like, I didn't know how to work any of the equipment. I didn't know how to sample. I didn't know how to do any. I, I knew what sampling was, but I didn't know. I couldn't. If he said, here, here's the machine, go do it. I wouldn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I asked a lot of questions and I, I watched everything he did, every button. What does that do? Why'd you, why'd you turn that knob? And I, I asked a lot of questions just to try to learn. Um, so that by the time I got to my second albums, you know, Slaughterhouse, I at least had a clue on what I was trying to do and what I, what I was doing. Nice. What's your stance on streaming versus wax? I don't like, I mean, I stream now, but that's just like the sort of the, that's the, that's the new thing. That's what we do now. But I always liked consuming physical music, like having the CD or having a piece of vinyl that you could kind of read the credits Right. as, you know, as you were listening to it, you could see, oh, who's this person that's featured on the joint? Like, you kind of like read it. Right. Um, yeah, right. I miss that, and and you know I'm I'm actually guilty of streaming. I say guilty of because I feel I feel whack that I'm, you know, somebody's new album just dropped. Oh, word, boom, go right to Amazon and play it. Like yeah. I I didn't buy that record. I'm listening to their album. I'm consuming their music, mm-hmm. but I didn't actually pay for the music. Right. And something about that feels wrong to me. But, but it makes me understand why they pay these streaming companies pay so little to the artists. Like they, it's like a it's like an eighth of a penny or something like that mm-hmm. per per stream. It's like no money. Yeah. And the guys so hard creating, learning the craft, and I and I and I'm with you on that because I miss the, the, the fried chicken and popcorn when you hit the meter history. You know what I'm saying? I'm. Yeah. I'm that. I miss that part of hip hop, man. Instead of just just coming on, man. Yeah, it's a different day and day. I'm just I'm old school like that, man. I'm, I'm from that era where that was part of hip hop, man. This is the popcorn, the fried chicken coming on before the song comes on. So I was yeah. curious about that. Is is it true? Is is it true that um me and Biz um came about because Biz missed the studio session and Marley was just like, forget it, leave the vocals? Well, he didn't miss the studio session. He didn't want, he refused to come to do the studio <coughs> session because oh. what I mentioned earlier, that, that rift had already started with, with Marley taking all the credit. And mm-hmm. so Biz Biz didn't want to, Biz was like, nah, I ain't going, I'm not, you know, if you want to record it, bring the song to my, my studio, we'll do it here. Mm-hmm. And Molly's like, nah, we're not bringing, we're not taking no music over there. It's, <laughs> we're gonna leave it how it is. Like they, I got caught. I'm a brand new artist. Like I got caught in the middle of, mm-hmm. of their little feud or whatever, their little quarrel. And I was just trying not to rock the boat and just trying to get my album done, man. Yeah, yeah. I've I've heard MC Shan also make like have similar um feedback in terms of Molly Mall and you know recording with Molly Mall and feeling like Molly Mall would take most of the credit, but that everybody else was contributing and doing an equal part as well i mean i had an opportunity i went to bb kings when you guys had like the juice crew reunion show and it looked like from from the outside looking at it it looked like you guys were all in a good place and it was a great show yeah it was a fun night it was, it was first time in a really long time that all of us were in the, in the same building together and backstage you know seeing each other and talking and hanging out and laughing 
it was a it was it was it was cool it was a very cool night dope yeah the, the symphony greatest greatest posse record greatest well i mean you know, the, the, to me the greatest crew record of all time have you heard another record that made you say like damn like this kind of rivals the symphony this is this this is a crew record that's as good as the symphony I mean, there's a few dope ones. The symphony is special because it's really the, kind of kind of the first of its kind. Yeah. Um, when you have three, four different solo artists being thrown on a, on a record together, um, that's the, that wasn't happening really up to that point. Um, so it was kind of the first of its kind. But you know, I like the posse cut that the four three two one the LL did. I thought that was super dope. Um, yeah. I like the headbangers. That was dope. Too. Um, there's a few dope ones, man. I, I I consider, I consider protect your neck Wu Tang Clan. I consider that a posse cut, and Absolutely. that definitely rivals, if not you know, <laughs> that, that definitely rivals the symphony in terms of dopeness. Yeah. The master, let me ask you this. this might be off topic, but little on. How important is imagination? Is what? Imagination. How important is imagination? Oh. For me, it's vital. For me, it's vital. Uh, I think that um, to make records that captivate listeners and make listeners travel someplace, because you know, I feel like my job is to transport people someplace. Um, it's very, it's very important that I have this imagination, so that I can bring people on this, on this, on this journey with me, wherever it is that I'm going. And a lot of the stuff that I write, people think that it's uh, actual, um, you know, circumstances going on, real right. scenarios, but they're really just coming from the mind. Um, it's fictional scenarios that I've just imagined. Like one of, one of the songs I think of is this my, I have a song called Brooklyn Masala that's on um, my album, A Long Hot Summer. And I can't tell you how many times I've been asked by fans, was that a true story about you meeting the girl? And I was like, nah, I just, I just, I just came up with that. And they were like, really? It really sounds like a real story. And I was like, I mean, it's completely fictional. It didn't happen. There's nothing like it ever happened before. And um, it amazes people. But that's what our job is, I think, anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like you kind of, to me, you've made a lot of dope concept-related albums. Like, is it important for you in putting your, your projects together now for it to be a concept album? Yeah, that's just part of my... That's the fun for me of making a record. Um once I started really, like, I kind of found my group. I, I was doing concept albums ever since probably Slaughterhouse, but mm -hmm. on Disposable Arts in 2001, that's where I really kind of found my groove. Because mm -hmm. I really finally figured out the formula of how to, of, of how to introduce ca the characters into the audience within the skits and within the framework of the whole entire album. <laughs> and once I kind of figured out that formula, I was like, oh, I'm doing this every record. This is fun. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy writing the script, bringing in different people to do the voices of the characters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so it just became part of the fun process of making an album, not not just making the songs, but actually creating these skits and 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 creating 
you know, these uh, interludes and the background sounds mm -hmm. and stuff like we actually would go and sample room noise. Like a person talking in the room, we would go and record room noise mm -hmm. and then add that to the conversation because it needed to sound like they were in a room, not in an actual studio booth. So yeah, some of those like little tiny, if you really listen to the skits in headphones, you can hear some mm -hmm. of the kind of little background cool things that happen. Like there's one skit, you know, I forget which album, uh, uh, where a car drives by while the people are talking with a with a booming system, and the right. car drives by playing. It's like a, I think it's the EMC album, and a car actually drives by playing another EMC record from a from from a previous project. And like if you're not if you're just focused on what the character's saying, you miss that. But mm -hmm. if you really get into it and you're listening and you listen to the, the car going by playing this playing this like that's purposely place like that for a reason and it's, yeah. to, it's to intrigue those people that want to get deeper than just the the, the 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 songs yeah positive energy in the chat says disposable arts is one of the most underrated albums in hip-hop it was a classic it's my favorite album of mine for whatever that's worth yeah and that, and that album came off a little bit of a layoff correct and you came up with that album yeah that was a that was a very big layoff layoff i was off for four and a half years i actually I kind of was in a place before that album that I wasn't going to do music anymore. I really felt like, you know, I had run my course um, and I was really disenchanted with the whole game. I, I wanted to see if I could maybe just produce for other people, um, maybe get a job at a record label and just kind of try to change the game from, from, from within. That mm -hmm. was my thinking. Um, and probably, you know, 90, 98 99 that's where my head was um because i had just gotten an album shelved another artist i had got got album got shelved i'm like man they just shelving people's music like you work on something for two years and then they're just like ah we're not putting it out like just uh -huh. so, so casually right we're not we're not putting that out um and so it started to make me feel like what i was doing was just disposable and so that's the mm -hmm. name when they when they shelve sorry Rob when they shelve you as an artist do they give you an explanation or they just say like oh we just decided we're not gonna we're not gonna release the music well you know kind of what the explanation is because you've had meetings that led up to that moment and in those meetings I was being told you know you need to really come with some really more R and B kind of heavier joints with singing on them and. Mm -hmm. You need to, you know, I was. It was suggested that I should get changing faces on a song. I should get Brian McKnight on a song. Like, these are the kinds of suggestions that were being made by the label. And, you know, I I knew I wasn't doing that, so it it, it sort of became okay. I'm not doing that, so I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing, and they're gonna have to decide what they want to do. Mm. And they made that their was decision. Kind of an era where you, know, you had Mary merging with everyone. You had all these. R&B groups with hip hop or rap groups making these songs. So. That was the Bad Boy era. Bad Boy was like mm -hmm. 90, 98, 99, 2000. Bad Boy was like killing the airways with all this R&B laden hip hop. Right. And you know, it was a little bit of a um. It was like a uh, it was like an arms race because everybody was rushing out trying to grab that last that 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 next hit soul record that nobody rapped over yet and create right. a record out of it. Right. And um, I just didn't want to be in that. Like, I didn't want to be on that. Like, I wanted to just kind of do what felt right. And unfortunately, you know, the label that I was on at the time, they they were like, yo, you need to chase this or 
you know, we, we, we're not going to be on the same page. Wow. I, can tell you, I can tell you what felt right. You working with NOG. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was that was a cool project. That was an unexpected. I'm sure that caught a lot of people off guard because. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, it wasn't even, it was when Edo first mentioned it, the idea to me, I was like, that sounds whack. I, 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 I didn't think, I was like, I don't think I would want to hear that. That's kind of <laughs> where I was at with it. And then he came back to me a little while later and was like, yo, I found a dude, an investor that's willing to invest money uh in us doing the record we, we can put some money in our pockets and all we got to do is deliver 10 songs and i was like okay money's money talks so you know the money was paid we started making music to my surprise the music actually started sounding pretty good i was like yo this this, this stuff is sounding kind of all right <laughs> and so we got like we got maybe like eight or eight or ten songs in and the investor ran out of money and he was just like, you know, I can't, I can't continue to finance this. I'm, I'm out of money. Something happened personally, his personal life. And he had to, he couldn't just put money in it anymore, but we had these 10 songs and it was like, okay, well, how do we feel about what we have? And we both liked the music that we had. So we kept, we kept recording and we started putting our own money up to finish the records. I, I, it, it sounded, the music sounded good enough that it was worth, yeah. Continuing it and finishing it, so that's what we did. I like him to acrobatic, wordsmith. I mean, there's so many underground guys, man, that don't get the light of day. Mm -hmm. They just need one joint or two joints and a, a, a producer to pull them out, and, that, and that's why I like. You working with Marco Polo? You and Marco Polo are a dream team, my dude. Mm -hmm. Like the, 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 the Brooklyn story, every last joint on there. It's a mature. It got a mature feel. It got it just quality. The, son, the, the, the sonically, the way it's mixed, the way it's arranged, dope ass out. I give Marco Polo all the credit on the sonics because, you know, he told me when we first started the project. I know I, he's like Ace. I know you're used to mixing all your records and taking 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 control of that too. But since I'm, I would like to you know, I would like to hold my end of the of the weight and let me handle that part of it. Mm. And that's tough for me because every project up to that project, I was right there for every mix, tweaking, touching, changing, fixing. And for the first time in my career, I stepped away. I just did lyrics. Mm. I just did the rhymes and the hooks. And I stepped away and I said, okay, I'm letting you do it. And I mean, we, we, he would, he would hit me. He would send me, you know, mixes. How does this sound? What do you think about this? And I'd be like, yo, I think the hook could be louder or, you know, that snare is way too low. Or like I would put my, my input on that and he'd be like, all right, cool. He'd take my notes. Mm -hmm. But I literally left it up to him. So I got to big him up for the way the album sounds because when we perform those records, they bang. They 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 knock. Bang. They knock. Yeah. Somebody said acknowledge is still acknowledge is still a track that holds so much weight today, and personally one of their favorites. But what's your favorite track off the Disposable Arts album? Ooh. Probably take a walk. Um, because to this day. 
I perform that song around the world. And as soon as that beat drops, I usually do it late in the show too. Like I, I wait until I do like an encore mm -hmm. and then I come back, I leave the stage and they think the show is over and I come back and I do that record. And it's always like it, the energy in the room just goes to another level when that song, people love that song. And it made me, I mean, I love the song too, mm -hmm. but to see people react to it and respond to it the way they do, it just makes it even more enjoyable for me. So. It's a tough, you know, I love, I love that whole album, but I, I would pick Take a Walk. Okay. You know, when, um, also when you first started out, there was a lot of, it was much more publicly accepted, I think, to have an MC writing for somebody else. And then I think in the 90s, that started to shift and it started being viewed as if you got somebody writing for you, you're not a true MC. But now we see it's kind of turning back around where a lot of the popular artists today is coming out that they actually have people that are working and writing for them. What's your position on ghostwriting? How do you feel about that? I feel I don't have a problem with ghostwriting for commercial artists who are just trying to be on the radio and make hit records. Because mm -hmm. I understand that. As long as the rhymes are not talking about how dope you are and how you're the best MC, <laughs> you're the illest. Um, I know I understand the, how the how the commercial game works, and so. You know, if somebody comes to you and they got a song that they already wrote and it sounds like a hit, I can't do it. I wouldn't be able to do it, but I understand what the game is. Um, I think the best example uh, of this is is Drake because his name has been tossed around quite a bit mm -hmm. in that in the circles of ghostwriting and things of that nature. But I, I always have to caution people um, when it comes to Drake is that if you have any question about his pen game or his lyrical prowess all you have to do is go get his first two mixtapes yep and the rhymes are, see I, all i need to know is that a dude could rhyme like once i hear right i know you wrote this and this is ill to me nothing else after that matters to me like some people just completely you know discount him because this dude wrote part of a song or created mm -hmm. this hook or this these lines and I don't discount him because I know he could rhyme. It'd be different if I never heard him rhyme and he wasn't that mm -hmm. dope. And then I hear these dope rhymes. That'd be different. But so that that's kind of where I stand with it. If you got people writing for you, can you be mentioned in the same breath when people are talking about the top, the best MCs all time? Not MCs, but if you artists, commercial artists. artists. Yeah, if you want to say commercial artists, like that's a different category to me, you know, different mm -hmm. category. Dane Henderson has asked you, um, what was recording this video experience or what was the experience of recording Saturday night? That that beat was heavy. Saturday Night Live. That was, a fun, that was a fun night. Um, we went to 42nd Street. We went to 42nd Street with a camera and just was walking down Broadway, just wilding out, like just wilding out and, and, and performing to the camera. Um, that was fun. Um, there was a bunch of dudes from Brooklyn. It had to be 50 of us out there. Uh, we actually we we, we performed part of it in a in an abandoned building in Brooklyn, um, and a and a, a, a abandoned building that we had no business being in, because yeah, like it wasn't. I mean, abandoned buildings aren't safe. You know what I'm saying? And right. we were in there. We 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 just broke into it, went in there, and started recording, and did most of the video in this abandoned building. And at one point. The cameraman stepped on a on a wooden plank and his leg went through the floor. Wow. 
and he's like, but he didn't. His whole body, thank good, he was a bigger, he was a heavy set dude. So luckily, his whole body didn't go through a fall because he got, couldn't got could have gotten really hurt. But one leg he fell, one leg went into the floor, and he was still holding that camera though. And we, we was like, oh my god, we helped him up. It was like scary for a minute. Um, but yeah, we we, we got it. It was a fun video. We had the, the fireman jackets, flashlights, just trying to just be different and look edgy and crazy. It was fun. Yeah. Was there ever a thought of recording a second album on Cold Chillin'? And what made you switch to, well, not switch, but what made you say, you know what, for my second go-round, I'm going with the group when you did your second your second album? I was working on my, I was, I was working on a second album in 91, 91-92, that was supposed to be for Cold Chillin'. It would have it came out in 92. Um, I was working on it, had about 10 songs done, and Warner Brothers, who is the distributor, uh, basically told Coach Chillin that the roster was too crowded. It was too many artists. Mm-hmm. And they needed to cut some cut some artists. And so they there was they were, at the time I think we probably had fifteen or sixteen artists on the label. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they basically listed every artist, one through sixteen, and they drew a line and they were like, Everybody above this line you can keep, everybody below this line got to figure something else out with mm-hmm. i saw that list my name was right below the line wow and so coach Ellis plan was oh we're just gonna put your album out on um prism on prism yeah and i was like i don't want to be on Pr- prism is for singles like i'm not <laughs> i immediately told my manager yo get me out of here like figure something out so my manager just started actively reaching out um he had some interest from a label in philly called rough house records mm-hmm. and um they they actually were very interested in the delicious vinyl. So it was between the two of those labels. And I could have gone either way. I went delicious because they had already had a track record of hit artists. By the time I was there, they had Tone Loke going platinum. Young, Young MC was platinum. Mm-hmm. Brand new heavies was gold. So to me, like they were more on the up uptick. So we went with we went with we went with delicious vinyl, um, which was based in, in, in Hollywood, LA. Um, and it, it wound up being a, a, a good, a good run, good relationship. Um, I love the fact that I could just go up to the label and I knew everybody. I knew the president. I knew, this, you know, I knew everybody. And mm-hmm. we could just go up there and use the phones. Back then there was no cell phones. So we would go to the label to call girls, you know, and yo, meet me at the hotel, whatever, whatever. <laughs> um, we would just burn their phone, we would burn their phones up. Um, but it just was a it was just a good home it like it's like being a, being at your crib you know I, I love that i like that vibe so i felt at home there i enjoyed it uh my time there two two albums worth and it, mm-hmm. it was the right it was the right move for me yeah i'm trying to think of the eight artists that coach the uh, seven or eight artists that coach chillin would have had that would have came come before you because oh, so I, I, I can give you the list i might have the numbers up so it was mc shan these, these are people that they that they were allowed to keep mm-hmm. MC Shan, Big Daddy Kane, Bismarcky, Roxanne Shante, Kooji Rapping Polo, Granddaddy IU, and then below and then below the line was myself, the Genius, also known as Jizza from Wu Tang Clan, Kid Capri, Diamond Shell, wow. um. There's another group, uh, I can't think of the name of them. 
But I see. I thought that I thought that Diamond Shell, Kid Capri, and Granddaddy IU. I thought that those were like Biz artists, and that Biz had like a spinoff situation with them. They were his artists, but they were still under Coachella. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. There's probably a couple other names. I'm, I, there's definitely two other names of groups that I can't think of right now. Two, there's a group called Too Large or something. I, I can't think of this other group, but there was like another two groups that were below. Yeah, I read in the book also. I think that um, another thing that may have helped you help set you apart from some of the other artists is that you recognized early that your manager and label shouldn't be the same person, and you you had you had outside representation, right? But wasn't at, at one point. Fly Ty was also managing people as well. He was. He managed. Yeah, he was managing. He was managing the artists that were signed to his label, which is outrageous. Mm -hmm. And you know, I knew that that was a conflict of interest mm -hmm. because your manager is the person that's supposed to argue with the label when things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. Right. So he had everybody caught up in this, and I was probably me and Craig G were the, the first. Craig G didn't even sign. He once he saw what I was going through, and he he actually thanked me recently. He's like, "Yo, I know you went through a lot of crazy, crazy stuff with them, but seeing what you were going through made me know that I wasn't going to sign with them. I wasn't going to do an album with them." And so he Marley took him and went. They they went and signed with Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I was the first. I think of 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 the artist that said, "Nah, I don't want to be managed by Superstar Management." That was the name of his the, the mm -hmm. company, Superstar. I was like, "I don't want to do that." And you know, I I, I distinctly remember Fly Ty saying, kind of defiantly, "If he ain't on, if he ain't the Superstar Management, he ain't Juice Crew." And I was like, "Okay, I guess I'm not Juice Crew then." <laughs> um, but the but the fans say otherwise, so mm -hmm. it didn't really it didn't really stress me. Speaking of fans, talk about your international fans versus U.S. fans. I know the crowds out there in Europe and Berlin, and they like they have a great time when hip hop comes out. You wouldn't even, you don't even know the half, brother. You you would really have to travel there and go to a show to really see. Like you wouldn't even really believe it. Right. If you could see that the 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 support, the love, the the enthusiasm, the excitement to see hip-hop artists you know from the states underground cats right like myself who haven't really necessarily had this huge commercial success but over there you would think that we had commercial success the way that they respond to us um i i tour i tour in europe more than any place else but i do tour in canada as well and it's the same there i tour i do tours in australia it's the same there mm -hmm. the u.s is the only place where it's not the you don't feel that same level of support um just as an for example right i'll do a show I'll, I'll put together like a little mini tour in the u.s where we do like six cities or whatever and each night you know you might get on a good night you get 100 people wow most nights it's less than 100 people some shows 60 some shows 40 some shows 30 people and so you know as an artist that can start to mess with your psyche a little bit yeah. like damn yeah. like nobody's really i'm not popping at all like nobody's look at this look at this this is crazy and i've done i've done recent shows in the u.s for with less people than that 
you know, 20 people. But I travel, I travel outside of the United States. I'll just use Europe as an example. I have, if I have a show in Berlin, I walk in the room, promoter, I go to soundcheck, promoter's like, oh, show, show sold out. We got, mm. we got, we got 550, 550 tickets sold. I walk in the spot, it's ram packed. You can't even get to the backstage, it's so crowded. I wow. get on stage and everybody knows, everybody knows every song and everybody's singing along. And it's because of Europe and Australia and Canada that I feel, you know, I feel validated because, and maybe they're not messing with me like that here, but they're messing with me somewhere. And, and, and that's what keeps me going. Yeah. What do you attribute that to, though? Like the, you know, the U.S. response first when you, you leave the country? Because the U.S. is such a commercialized market. Um, it's so commercialized that our fans believe that if it's not on the radio, if it's not on TV, it doesn't exist. Program. Yes. And it's not like that in, in Europe. They don't have the same they have commercial radio stations but that they, they play like like pop songs and mm-hmm. techno and stuff like that um so the fans actually seek out the music they, they they back then it was napster but they share they seek it out they find it and they listen to it and they enjoy it and then they come to the show and then they buy your merch like they, there's a there's a this a different level of support mm-hmm. and so I, I run into people all the time in the u.s they recognize me. They're like, "Oh, shoot, Master Ace, yo, man. When, when I remember that me and the Biz song, man, that was a good song, man." I'm like, "Thanks, you know. I put out a few records since then, you know. Oh yeah, I, I didn't know you were still doing music, it's like, brother. I got like, I got, I got eleven albums. What? Get out of here. Yeah. If it's not on the radio, it doesn't exist here." Yeah, we were t- we were talking also um, a little bit earlier, and I was saying to Rob, I kind of feel like um, in the U.S., the U.S. the difference for me between the U.S. and other countries is that in the U.S. it's become so commercialized that it's rap, whereas you go to these other countries and you see hip hop in its purest form. Like you see the vinyl, you see people still walking around with set CDs, you see people interested in the merch, you see people who seek out the music. You know, you see people who know about the culture from breakdancing to graffiti and all that. But for us in the U.S., it just feels like in the U.S. it's about whatever's playing on the radio, whatever's hot. That's, yeah, you you pretty much hit the nail on the head, brother. That's exactly yeah. what it is. That's, uh, that's unfortunate. I think we need more hip-hop collabs, man. Like I said, you and Marco Polo just like the dream team are you are you looking forward to working with any or is there any other producers you would love to work with that you haven't worked with well me and mark are doing another record so that's that's right. that's next on the that's next on the menu that's he's actually already given me probably 10 to 12 beats that i have to write to i haven't written to any of them yet um, because I always, I always wait for the inspiration. I don't just force write. Like I, I hate, I hate that. I, I don't, I don't write my best when I'm force writing. So I just wait for the inspiration. It's going to come from somewhere. I don't know when and where it happens, but it happens when it happens. And, mm-hmm. um, once I get that first inspiration, then, then I'm off and running and I start writing like crazy. You got 12 bangers. All the beats are excellent. Like, like I'm very picky. So. If, if you like the beats on the last record, you, you know I'm I'm very selective. 
I turned a lot of I turned a lot of joints down that you probably would say were bangers that I was like, nah, I mean, I mean that's dope, but that's not for me. It don't speak to you. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't speak to you. Um, just to switch gears, let me let me ask you, you know, get your opinion on some of the stuff that's currently going on in the world. You know, um, right now, of course, everybody is 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 kind of in an uproar in terms of the Joe Biden and Kamala Harris ticket. And you have some people who say that they don't want to vote for Trump, but they don't want to vote for Joe Biden either because of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's record on criminal reform. What do you say to people who like they don't like either one of those candidates? I say to anybody that's listening to this broadcast or will see this broadcast at a later date that doesn't that doesn't like Donald Trump being president. A no vote is a vote for Donald Trump. If you decide, you know what, I'm just gonna sit this one out, you're voting for Trump. Indirectly, you're voting for Trump because that's how we got in office last time. So many of our people stayed home. We were just so satisfied with the fact that hey, we have we had Barack Obama for eight years, so we, you know, we 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 good, we good. And by by staying home and not continuing to be involved in the electoral process, we we indirectly let Trump walk in the door. Mm-hmm. And if and if they're going to get caught up on Harris's record and you know her criminal justice record and. Biden's flubs or whatever they don't like about Biden, just be clear. If you stay home and don't vote, you're voting for Trump. The other thing I want to ask you is that, you know, right now is a very sensitive time in our country. Well, I would say throughout the world with with Black Lives Matter. And one of the things that's been coming up recently is that people use inner city violence to sort of deflect from the message of Black Lives Matter. So you know, as a person, I grew up in the Bronx, so I know inner city violence exists. And I purposely say inner city violence because to me, the terminology, when you start talking about black on black crime, I view crime as being more so about opportunity. Like if you live around white people and it's predominantly white people around and you commit crimes, you're going to commit crimes against white people. So we never hear the terminology, white, you know, white on white crime. But I'm just, I, I just wonder from your perspective, you know, with all this stuff going on for Black Lives Matter, what do you see as formidable reparations for um for black people if we are to get something tangible out of this i mean wow that's a that's a very loaded question when you talk about reparations um because the united states has not has not yet come to terms with their original sin which was slavery and the enslavement of black people and the united states is not prepared or ready to own up to the condition that black America is in is still connected to what was done so many years ago. Um, I, I just real, I just feel very strongly that if, 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 if they can send reparations to Israel for what happened to Jews in Germany, not in the United States, in Germany, if they can send reparations to them, if they can send reparations to Japan, and there's a and there's, and there's a few other uh, groups mm-hmm. that they figured out who to send, how to send reparations to, mm-hmm. it's 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 imperative that they figure something out. I, now, what form that is, I don't know what form that is, but it 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 certainly 
And, and, and to be honest with you, whatever they come up with, it's still, it's not going to in mm. any way make up for what was, what has been done, mm-hmm. but at least it can start hopefully to repair some lives. I, I was, I was actually with, I was with a friend yesterday and we were, we were at a, at a, at a marina. We went to a friend's, a friend had a party on a boat and as we were just walking through the arena, the marina by ourselves, we're looking at all these boats around us. And he's just like, man, this, this is the life right here. And I was like, yeah. Um, when you have a 400 year head start to generational wealth, this is what you get. You get to have an extra boat and you know, that you can just go hang out on or whatever, take out. And he's like, you know what? You're right. I said, yo, that's the thing. Like a lot of, a, a lot of white people, they think you just, they, they use the pull, pull, pull yourself up by the bootstraps term. They didn't. Yeah. And, and they, they don't realize that the people they're talking to don't have boots in the first place. So there's no straps. There's no boots. There's no straps. Um, they have a 400 year head start based on all of these different laws that were passed and redlining and you know, the GI Bill, all those things that put white people in, in a financial advantage in this country for decades, centuries. Mm-hmm. And so now that they have that huge head start, now they say, okay, what's wrong with you guys? Why can't you do what we're doing? And they'll, and they'll like to point to certain wealthy or rich black people. Oprah Winfrey, oh, look at her, look what she did. She's, she's a poor girl from whatever, from Chicago, whatever. Man, please, like, you wanna to point to one or two rich black people and tell me that that's the example? It's not the example when education is not up to par for our people. Right. When, 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 when our kids are in the worst schools, horrible teachers, horrible education, we don't have a shot at this thing. Wait, if things stay the way they are. So, I know it was a long, drawn-out answer, but I don't know what I don't know what form of reparations. I think I think a great. I heard a great suggestion. I don't remember where I heard it. Is that uh, black students should go to college for free? I agree. That would be a, that would be a great first step. Right. I a agree. great first step. I mean, that's just a first step. But if 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 you're black in this country, you should be able to go to any university you want to for free. Mm-hmm. Bottom yeah. line. Because if you, you, you think about it, you know how that'll help? Because we are we are already dealing with the um the wealth disparity, and then you go to school and then you get straddled with all kinds of student loans and things like that that puts you even further behind the eight ball. The OG dad says, Hey Ace, American blacks are below the cold chilling cut line. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. So let me ask you this. So what do you say to a black person who says that they've never experienced racism? I don't even talk to that person. <laughs> I don't have a conversation for that person, honestly. I, I'm, I'm tired of arguing with, with idiots. Like I, I don't, I don't do it. I don't do it on, on social media. Once I see it, if I, hear, if I hear a person make a statement, I say, you're an idiot. I'm done with the conversation is done. I don't even want to talk to you. <laughs> Like you couldn't put me in a debate with uh what's that what's that chick named Candace Owens? Like you couldn't you couldn't oh, put yeah, me yeah. you couldn't put me in a room with her and have a conversation. I I'll I'll be like, get her out of here, yo. I don't want to talk to her. 
<laughs> but with all that being said, how important you being from Brownsville and just talking to general still, how important is knowledge itself? Or how people have a knowledge itself? I mean, it was important for me um, coming up because, you know, I, I was around, I was around a lot of uh, five percenters in my neighborhood. I wasn't one, um, but a lot of my close friends were, and I actually used to kind of hover outside of the little ciphers that they were doing, um, just to kind of like get a little insight. You know, I was more of a, I was more of a school books guy. Um, but one of my good friends was he he joined the nation and he was learning his lessons and he was he would kind of like break stuff down for me and show me what he was learning and so I was like oh so this is just all memorization he's like yeah like and you he said we get in these ciphers and we challenge each other like what's this degree mean what's today's degree what's today's mathematics and you know if you don't have your books memorized and this 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 is the part that was a little uh, I didn't agree with but they were getting to these ciphers and if certain and this is brownsville if, if, if a guy didn't know what he was talking about he would get punched in the mouth like yeah, right in the spot it's like damn like is that how you is that how we're teaching each other we just gonna <laughs> snuff each other in the face like um funny you say that because that's one of the things that strayed me away too although i love i love the, the idea of enlightening ourselves with our history and so many other things but you know i didn't want to go to i didn't even want to go to third period Science, you gonna punch me in my mouth because I don't know today's mathematics. Right, right. <laughs> I don't want that. But I do and in my in my just I just want to just say in my neighborhood, a lot of the a lot of five percenters in my projects were the biggest criminals in the projects. They were doing the most dirt in the neighborhood. So it sort of made me hesitate and pause to be down with that because I'm like, if that's what they on, then that's not what I want to be on. Mm. Yeah. So how, how's your, you know, how, how are you doing in terms of your health? I, you know, I know you got MS. How, what's that been like? It's challenging. Um, but I, uh, I have to say that compared to many others, I'm doing pretty well. Um, I'm able to move around. I'm able to exercise. I've been, I've been, I took a bike riding this summer, which has been amazing because I was just tired of being cooped up in the house. Mm driving you know right you know just in the house like stuck in the house and not getting any sun not getting any vitamin d mm -hmm. and um I, I went out and bought a bike i had a bike but then i bought another bike um so that i could start riding with this with this crew of bikers that right. go out every weekend and man what a what a great experience just a, a 20 30 young brothers fathers Dudes with jobs, just coming out together, um, bringing their bikes out and just riding together, and 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 just enjoying the outdoors and breathing some air and getting some sun. And I've you know for the last I guess six weeks, seven weeks straight, I've been going out, I, and I ride during the week too with my wife, my daughter. We go out, um, and ride just ride, man. And you know everything that I do, whether it's bike riding or running or walking or whatever I'm doing. I do it with the full realization that there could come a day where I can't do these things anymore. And so, um, you know, you know, I ride bikes, I go hard. Like I'm, a, I'm a, like, man, this might, I might not be able to ride a bike in 20 years or 10 years. You know what yeah. I mean? I don't know. So I'm going to go, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go 25 miles. And everybody, like, 25 miles, you crazy? 
yo, if my body allows me to do it, I'm doing it. Yeah. You get that, that you get that, like um, the biker tie when you're riding that bike and that before you know it, you don't even realize how far you've actually rode. Yeah, I have a I have an app that sort of tracks my mileage as I'm going. So it tells me every time I hit a, hit, hit the next mile. And so like maybe three or four weeks ago, I, I went out with a group of guys and we wound up doing 30 miles and, and I, I didn't know what I was in for. I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know those guys. So I was like, OK, well, let's ride. And. We hit we hit twenty and I was like, yo, I, I the most I had done up to that point was twenty four. We hit twenty and they looked like they was like not even looking to stop no time soon. And we wanted, but it was all said and done. We did thirty and I was like, now I didn't plan to do thirty, but I'm happy to know that I can do thirty and mm -hmm. still and still be able to walk away and feel okay. Like I wasn't like dead. Like ah, like I was fine. Like I was like. So when people see those numbers, they're like, what? You did what? Yeah. Listen, it's yeah, doable. It's, it's doable. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it is. The OG dad says, where's the how to read a contract class in high school? Not just a record contract, just a contract, how to read a contract in general, right? <laughs> they, they, I mean, that would have been a really, very helpful class for me in high school because... I didn't really know what I was signing or what I was looking at when I signed with Coach Chillin. And I think they knew I didn't know. So I kinda got I kinda got I kinda got duped a little bit like a lot of us did in that at that time. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it comes with the territory. I guess you're gonna get you're gonna get burned on your first contract if you don't really know what you're doing. You know how to put homie business on? Say that again. You know how the big homie business doing? Uh, improving. It's improving. That's all. That's all I know. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Uh, Saint Henderson says, "What up with Lord Digger?" I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure he's on Facebook or something. That that's 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 his favorite place to be. So, I don't, but I don't know what he's up to. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um. So what was it like going from Brooklyn to Rhode Island? Because you went to college in, in Rhode Island, right? Yeah, it was culture shock. Bad. To be honest with you. Bad. Major culture shock. Um, nothing in Rhode I Island. Mean, I, had, I, had, I went to high school with white students, so I wasn't like a total foreign situation. But, you know, I was on a football team. Um, my school, my high school was probably, by the time I graduated, my high school was probably... 40%, 35, 40% black. So we were we were well represented in the building. Um and I got to Rhode Island and the campus was 95% white. And then it was like 2%, 2 or 3% black and the rest was other. Mm. And I was like I it, it was more than I had was ready for. And all the black students that were on the campus were on a sports team. I was the only one that wasn't on a sports team. Everybody was either on basketball, football, track. And, you know, I, I went there with the intention of playing sports mm -hmm. um, and wound up not playing. And after my first year there, I told my mother, I think I want to transfer to Howard. Like, I, I wanted, I wanted like, to be at the opposite, the polar opposite school <laughs> as I could be from Rhode Island. Yeah. And, you know, she's like, I understand. Why don't you um, 
do one more semester. If, if you don't like it after your sophomore semester, uh, sophomore year, first semester, then we'll, we'll try to get you transferred. So I was like, okay. And I went back for my sophomore year and there was a, there's a program at Rhode Island um, called talent development. And right. it was, it was put in place to recruit black students, students of color from the state. And mm -hmm. so that year they had this influx of about 40 or 50 students of color came, came to the school. From and Providence? From Providence, from Warwick, just the surrounding okay. uh, cities. And that's really all I needed, like, was to just see a little bit of me. Mm. And once I saw a little, little bit of me, I felt more comfortable. We kind of had our own little table in the cafeteria that we would all, you know, sit at and talk and crack jokes. And it just was a more comfortable vibe after that. And I, and I, wound, up, I wound up doing all four years there, really because of talent development, recruiting that they, the people that they brought in. So by the time it came time for you to leave, what was the what was the ratio then? Oh, a white it, it, it didn't make a dent. It probably yeah. went from ninety five to ninety two percent. Wow. Yeah. But still, like I said, I knew I knew I just had more. I, I made more relationships and I had more friends than I had that first year, right. um, where I kind of felt like a fish out of water. Interesting thing, had I transferred to Howard. I would have actually been in college around roughly the same time as uh, Derek Angeletti, P. Diddy, and mm. a few other, uh, Ron Lawrence. Like, there was a few guys that went from, to the, from the bad boy camp that we would have been, we would have been in, in the school together. And I would probably gotten to know those guys. And who, who knows what it took place from there? What, what would happen from there? Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Bradford Waddell says, what was the energy like on the set of the video shoot for the symphony? That's one of his all-time favorites. Oh, the energy for the video shoot, for me, it was exciting. It was my first video. I'd never been on a video set. I'd never been in a video. I didn't know anything. I was just there. Um, you can't tell from looking at the video, but it was shot in the winter. It was disgustingly cold. <laughs> it was like, we started at this dude ranch and it was like December or, or November, but that day it was like below freezing. It was like 30 or 28 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so we're in these cowboy hats and, you know, <laughs> we're not dressed for the weather at all. At all. And we had to look like we weren't cold. Mm -hmm. But when you see me walking in, in the saloon with that kind of, ice grill on my face i'm not really that's not the tough look that's the i'm cold as hell look <laughs> um, my ass between takes they had a um they had like a a little um space heater it was like if you've ever seen this on the sidelines of these nfl games it looks almost like a jet engine it's like a tube oh yeah 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 they had one of those and when i tell you the whole cast artists extras everybody huddling around in a group like we're just in this big huddle just trying to get as much heat as we could before the before the next before the next scene it's crazy and some of the girls look look at what some of the girls are wearing sleeveless dresses and stuff man you know, yeah. respect to them because i know they were freezing and you wouldn't know it from the video that's that, that's kind of cool to to think about now like you look at the video now you don't even think cold you think hot yeah 
Uh, Zane Henderson says, how did the Crooklyn Dodgers song happen? Both one and two are classics. Did you know what happened? Did you be such a huge influence? Uh, I was, let me just first just say, I was happy to be a part of Crooklyn one. I was, I'm thankful that Q-Tip called me and asked me to be on the song. Um, and Spike Lee, you know, asked this song to, for this song to be made for his movie. Um, I got the call from Q-Tip. Do you want to be on this song for Spike Lee's movie? I mean, who's going to say no? I'm like, hell yeah. So he's, he said to meet him at Special Ed Studio, which was called the Dollar Cab Lab on Utica Avenue in Brooklyn. On a particular day, I went up there. Ed was there. Buck was there. I was there. Ali, Shahid, Tip, a few other people. He played the beat, listened to it. Everybody went home, wrote their rhyme, came back, recorded our rhymes. But there was no, there was no instruction or direction about the song. It was just like, you know, go in. We went in, we rhymed. Everybody was just rhyming about how dope they were, like typical, you know, MCs. Mm-hmm. And Spike Lee heard the song. He's like, song is cool, but doesn't really fit the movie. The movie's about the 70s. It's about this family. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to have a screening. And he put together a private screening for, for about 25 people, us included, for us to watch the movie from beginning to end. Wait, I mean, it's like months before I hit the theaters. And then he's like, okay, now now that you've seen the movie, now go back and rewrite your rhymes. So we mm. all went back with that mindset of, okay, 70s. So that's why I'm, I'm referencing all of these 70s uh, TV shows. and right. it, But we needed to see the movie first to, to understand what we needed to write about. And so awesome. you get the rhymes that you have on the song, but there's another version of that song with completely different rhymes, which... I, I believe I have it on a cassette somewhere in a box or a bin. It's not labeled, so good luck finding it. It's somewhere in this house, though. <laughs> oh, man. What about um, one of the things that from when I read the, the Juice Crew book that stood out to me was um, it talked like a little bit about and you from you, your own words about your relationship with Mr. Magic. Um, and just that I guess that y'all never kind of really clicked with, you know, what do you attribute that to? Um, I mean, Magic, Magic was a prickly pear. You know what I'm saying? He, he liked who he liked, and everybody else, he, you know, whatever. Um, and I was one of the whatever people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know what his deal was. You know, with me personally, I mean, we didn't have any real interactions other than, um, I went up to Marley invited me up to the station a couple of times to rom with Craig. And um, I remember, I remember the first time I went up to to WBLS. I was waiting in the uh, in the reception area to be called back to go rom. And Magic came out and saw us waiting in the reception area, and told the security guard to kick us out, told us to go downstairs. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, Mar- I called Marley and like, yo, Magic just told said we had to leave. He said, don't worry about it, come back up. But those are kind of like the interactions that I had with him. Um, you know, R.I.P. I don't have a lot to. I don't. I feel like if I don't have a lot of positive to say, I'd rather just leave it where it's at because he's not here to. You know. Yeah, I respect that. Speak on it, so I'll leave it at that. 
Yeah, I respect that. Talk about working with um, Kool Aid out of Croatia. The song Beautiful. Oh, Kool Aid is a Kool Aid is a beast with, on on the music, man. That guy, who? When when I first heard his 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 beats, you know, I I heard him at D and D Studios. His 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 manager, Fat Philly, who who's like a very well known DJ in Croatia. Um, he he was at D and D. I can't remember who called me. Somebody called me up there. It's like, yo, this dude got beats, and I and I and I and I traveled up there. I was, I was working on disposable arts, and I went up there. And he starts playing me. He he played me like I'm not even lying. He played like 60 beats, and 40 something of them were dope as hell. I was like, "Who did these beats? <laughs> From where?" And they weren't all Kool Aid, but it was like it was like two other dudes on it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, producers from all all from Croatia. I was like, "These guys are from where?" I said, "Yo, it was hard to pick a beat first. Like I was like." Man, like I don't, you know, I, I wound up picking a beat from disposable for disposable arts at that time, but that was the beginning of, you know, the relationship. And beautiful was actually a a payback song because he did instead of instead of us exchanging money for the for the beat he he did on disposable arts, we I exchanged a feature for for his record. Nice. A record they were gonna do, and beautiful was the record that I recorded for them. And once I heard the final product, I was like, "Yo, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna need this for my album." So <laughs> I'll give y'all another song. And he's like, "All right, cool." You know, they were happy to just be on the record again anyway, two two mm-hmm. albums in a row. So I was, I was, I mean, that record to this day is probably the biggest record that that I've recorded in the latter part of my career in terms of like reaction and response at shows and things of that nature that and good old love are like probably the two records yeah that i've recorded so far into my career but get that i perform at the end of my show like right after born a row and all those records these records i perform at, at, the, at the very end yeah ninth wonder did good old love right yeah Yep. Yeah, that that is it's crazy just to see like people's interpolation of a sample because I think um Mob Deep used that too for I don't know, what's it um st- still shining they used exactly. it for shining that same sample that's but, what made me that's what made me like it or that's what made me like the beat because I I recognized it right away oh I said that oh that's that Mob Deep but he flipped it different I like this yeah you know yeah, um it. and and. Uh, Shout to Ninth. Uh, I, I was so fortunate. The timing mm. of catching Ninth when I caught him, mm-hmm. um, because literally we recorded that song, and three months later, he was in the studio with Destiny Child. Yeah, and he's I was like, it now. Yeah, I was like, man, I just got this guy. I wouldn't have got. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to afford him after that. So the timing was just like ideal. How'd you find out about him? Just from there was a 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 a, a, a woman who worked for the our distributor at the time, and she was shopping different producers around. Um, and she sent me up. She sent me some music from a few different producers, and I picked. Uh, I was like, yeah, this kid right here is dope. I, I knew about Little Brother already, but. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I picked that beat and I was like, okay, let's go. And and the rest is history. Yeah, Zane says, I always thought Master Ace and Queen Keith perfected the offbeat, onbeat flow. <laughs> I think mine was on purpose. I don't think his was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, let me ask you, and this is the last question I have. I want to hold you up much longer, but um, when you first started, you saw them like the production piece with Marley and coming to him with the records and just, you know, being a student. Have you gotten to the point now as a producer where you feel like you could go in, you could do all elements, like you could cut a sample or, or chop a sample up and do all those things? Or do you still feel like you're, you know, just, you know how you want something to sound and you'll go to somebody who may be able to work the machines better to put it together for you? Nah, I, so after, after my time with Marley, I started working on my Slaughterhouse album and I wanted to buy equipment. So I hit up, I had to think about who I knew that was the producer that was close, that lived close to me. And that was DJ Premier. He lived like five minutes from me. And I was like, yo, I want to buy equipment. I don't know what to buy. What do you have? <laughs> and he was like, I got the I got the MPC 60 Mark II, and I have the S950. I said, okay, that's what I'm going to buy. And then once I get it, I'm coming to your crib, and I want you to show me how to do this. And I went to Premier's crib. He sat me down. He showed me the A, Bs, and Cs of how to, how to loop, how to sample, how to loop, mm -hmm. how to truncate, how to just every step of how to make a beat. And then he said, okay, now you know how to do it. He said, I'm not telling you what to sample or what music to use. That's on you. Mm -hmm. I said, I got it. I'm gone. <laughs> and from that day, I started making beats like myself. And so if you if you look at the credits on my albums, like Slaughterhouse was a lot like co-production stuff. I didn't do, I don't think I did any straight up beats on Slaughterhouse, but I, I always add to those beats that were there. It wasn't until um, the Sitting on Chrome album. I produced almost the whole entire album. If you look mm. at the credits, I produced all of the singles. INC Ride, Born to Roll, uh, Sitting on Chrome, and a mm -hmm. bunch of the other album cuts um, were produced by me. I was I was, I was, was in my groove. Um, you know, For the Mind with Cellar Dwellers. Like, all those joints were joints that were, that I would, like, some of my early first beats that I that I made, but I was still mm -hmm. learning the equipment. And, um, yeah, man, I, I, I mean, now... It's been a while, so I would need a serious refresher course. My my stuff's been in my my, my equipment's been in, in boxes uh, ever since the the studio, the our second bedroom, the studio room became the baby's room. Oh. So my, my 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 daughter turned sixteen this year, so that's how long my stuff's been in boxes. Wow, wow. So what's next for Master Ace? Uh, I'm writing a musical. I'm 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 probably halfway i mean i have a script i'm working on the songs right now which has been interesting to create songs for a musical um because i'm learning that as an mc where you maybe have a little bit of freedom with where you go with the lines and you can kind of bounce around mm -hmm. um for a musical the each line is important and is specific and pushes the storyline forward you can't so you can't have any throwaway lines that just a cool metaphor mm -hmm. there's no room for that um each line has to be pushing the the narrative of the story forward and so i'm learning that as i go 
Um, but the musical is, is, is coming out great. It's based on the, the skits and storylines of three of my albums, A Long Hot Summer, Disposable Arts, and The Falling Season. So loosely based on kind of a mosh posh of those storylines. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, I have a script that's still needs a lot of tweaking, but we had a, we had a, uh, a table read in early March. We had actors actually come in and sit down and read through the entire, uh, script, um, as, as if they were playing these roles mm-hmm. just so we could hear what it sounded like, but it's coming out really, really, really great. I got some really dope music from some really incredible producers and, um, Man, I'm excited about this final product when it gets there. We're not there yet, but it's coming a lot. It's coming. A lot. I was actually working on it before we got on this call, working on one of the songs. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that for you. As we was talking earlier, I was thinking like, damn, he should write a full play. Like, I think that's right up the alley with this, with those skits and the and the content problems. But again, man, I want to thank you for agreeing to come on and do this. As you can see, you know, well, I don't know if you can see the chat, but people in the chat wonderful things to say about you. To me, you're MC's MC. You know, like if you go to the people that's, that's real MC's and ask them, you know, who's one of your influences, you'll hear them say Mass A's, you know. I've heard freestyles that you've done, you know, different things like that. And, you know, props where props is due, brother. I appreciate it. Uh, and, I, I, and I appreciate you feeling master with the A, because as a young guy, I, I was doing that name. And when I seen how you spelt it, I said, I'm spelling my name just like that, son. That's that's dope. Yeah, I I wanted to drop that ER from the cold chilling days. Yeah. I, don't want, I don't want no no memories of those days. <laughs> but God bless you, brother. Take care of your health. Peace. Yeah, appreciate y'all. Appreciate it. So there you have it, Master Ace on the check-in. Brooklyn, um, baby. Yeah, like, comment, subscribe. You know, we're, we're gonna continue to keep bringing you quality interviews. Master Ace, if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to Master Ace catalog and you're a hip hop fan, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen. I would listen all the way from the start, from take a look around. I thought it was a great album. All the way to Brooklyn, man. Brooklyn stories are dope. Yeah, Slaughterhouse, you know, to the um, the the sitting on Chrome, Disposable Arts. I think positive um, positive energy said the Disposable Arts classic album um, from Disposable Arts. He had the um, Long summer, then you know, falling season, like classic album after classic album, great content. You know, he's somebody who's really in the pocket. I think that knows who he is as the MC. He's a, you know, a dope, dope storyteller too. Yeah, and I honestly feel that you know, having been him, having been in the crew with Big Daddy Kane and Cool G Rap, that's the reason why I asked him that. Two people that always get mentioned when you start talking about top ten MCs that he may have gotten a little bit overshadowed, but in terms of if you listen to his work, actually putting a song, a quality song together, meaningful song, you know, he may, he wasn't talking about drugs and, and, and right. 40s and stuff like that. He always had a story, he always had a good flow, and it always came together really well, so. He came in on a, in a time because there was a point in hip hop where it was like, damn, all we gonna get is Rock Kim and Big Daddy Kane and Kooji Rap and KRS-One. And in came Master Ace, and it was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he and it seemed a little younger too, so it was like, yeah, this new generation right there. These, these guys is out of here. Master Ace is gonna take over. Definitely. Appreciate well, there you have it. Thank you for signing on for No Ideas Original Podcast featuring Shannon, the good brother, Mister Rob, 
And Zane, Zane's under the weather, so he couldn't be on today. But Zane was saying, get well soon. Get, well, the next get that Pepto-Bismol in your life. <laughs> Peace, everybody. Peace. Thank <laughs> you.